0: Quick update after we recorded this show. Ken Griffin, the hedge fund billionaire, came out and announced that he was the person who had bought and guaranteed the Constitution. Of course, he knew how to outbid some unruly group of 17,000 crypto people. Hello. Hello, and welcome to the Arriving Today episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Stacey Marie Ishmael of Bloomberg. Hello. And Emily Peck of Fundrise. Hi. And wonderfully, Christopher Mems of the Wall Street Journal. Chris, welcome to the show. Who are you and why are you on this show? I
1: met you at a party. That's why I'm here. No, uh, (laughs) half true. I'm a technology columnist. It is true. I'm a technology columnist at the Wall Street Journal, and I wrote a book about how everything gets from the factory to your front door called Arriving Today. And it turned out to be oddly timely because supply chains I wrote about all broke down just as it was coming out.
0: And if you ordered that book on Amazon, it will arrive today maybe perhaps if you have same-day delivery it's kind of an amazing phenomenon we will unpack that we will unpack the amazon logistics machine we will talk about the supply chain crisis more broadly we will talk about the constitution dow we have a packed episode coming up on slate money
1: a woo a hand clapper, a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18+. And
0: let's jump into the book. Chris, what is this book you have written?
1: I set out to write an explainer of how everything gets from the factory to our front door. And, um, I manifested a global pandemic and supply chain crisis during the reporting of the book to the point that the starting point of the book is actually a port in Vietnam. And when I was actually standing at the port in Vietnam, that was like the the day or the day before the world health organization announced that there was a, a pandemic brewing in Wuhan and uh, then I ended up following everything
0: and the and the pandemic as we as we all know, has broken supply chains globally and has caused shortages and inflation and chaos and I'm sure that somehow it's res- responsible for that boat that got stuck in the Suez Canal. The first question I really want to ask you about this is, does it turn out that supply chains were much more fragile than we thought they were or were they actually pretty robust and they have performed surprisingly well given the strains that were put on them i
1: would say they're pretty robust and they've performed you know remarkably well given the extraordinary strains that we've put on them the important thing to remember with the so-called supply chain crisis is that there are two totally separate phenomena happening And one is that there have been factories and ports shut down again and again in Asia where stuff is made and shipped from. And that is because of among other things you know China, Vietnam's uh, zero COVID policies. Um, and then on the other side, on the demand side here in the United States, so much spending shifted from services and vacations to goods that we have just had record demand for everything. And so that is just as much, if not more, the cause of, you know, what's going on at the port of Los Angeles and, you know, your packages being late and all the rest. It's just record demand for stuff.
0: Record demand for stuff. Although in some things like the chips that need to go into automobiles, there has been a genuine like plunge in supply as well.
1: Well, I mean, there has been automakers not ordering their chips far enough in advance, but, you know, that's a place where people are making record amounts of chips. Like, yes, there have been shutdowns occasionally because of the pandemic, but that's really about demand as much as anything.
2: This just feeds into my new theory, which is that supply chain is just the latest excuse companies can now rely on to explain away any failure in their In their strategy or business they're just like oh, supply chain like zillow messed up its housing algorithm because but they blame the supply chain and now we have inflation and it's because of the supply chain and every company is going to report earnings and whatever problems they have they're going to just blame it on the supply chain but here is christopher mims to tell us actually no this is a demand situation and the supply chains are fine
0: wait wait the crypto people didn't lose out on buying the constitution because of supply chain (laughs)
2: <laughs> supply chain. It's all the
0: sp- of it's supplies
3: it's, of constitutions. It's a new excuse.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just blame it on the supply chain.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yes, okay.
1: the factories Good. in it's Asia now. where constitutions are made were shut down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly believe that the little pocket copy of the constitution I got when I naturalized was probably printed in China. Like that's it's, of it's course it, it should have been. You know. Or Iceland, or somewhere like that. Like I feel like Iceland has this huge printing business.
3: But just going back to Emily's question, the thing I get confused by, there's this, you know, for years and years, there's been this fetishization of just-in-time manufacturing. And the, the idea that because massive corporations were so advanced and were so good at predictive modeling that they could tell down to the day what needed to be on shelves. And it seems to me that that is a system that is, poorly set up when there are spikes in demand that are less predict- predictable because you have like a massive external shock in the form of a pandemic and then all of the things reverberating out of that. So how does how does that fragility kind of play into the dynamic that that Emily is asking about and that you write about in your book?
1: Yeah, I'm nodding emphatically because, you know, like a like a laser guided cruise missile, I think you have hit what is the core <laughs> issue here. Yeah. Um, and uh yeah so everybody forever you know like operations is kind of like the black sheep of business schools and and now those professors are having their moment um but everyone just tried to, to make their supply chains more and more lean so that they could you know sell more things more cheaply as businesses are wont to do but that leaves no extra capacity right like if there are tons of single points of failure like if you only have one manufacturer in China and it all comes through this one port which everyone has you know, consolidated to, then yeah, there's going to be lots of problems. And we've seen that with the, you know, the supply chain problems for chips. So, you know, part of this is that there has been so much consolidation uh, in most of the links of this supply chain. And um, yeah, there's not, uh, you know, people were starting to Try to multi-source or dual-source before the pandemic even happened because they were worried about trade wars, right? So Nike and Adidas were set- setting up copies of their factories in China in places like Vietnam because they were worried about you know um, tariffs and stuff, uh, or a shooting war in the South China Sea. So people are definitely realizing now, like, oops, like we need to have more places to get goods and more ways to get them into our stores, et cetera, because. Like you said, the just-in-time ethos, which came from manufacturing, has been, you know, incredibly avidly adopted in supply chains. And it means you have these really long supply chains with all of these single points of failure that are ultimately vulnerable to, you know, any kind of natural or political disaster. It doesn't just have to be a pandemic.
0: And this was known. It doesn't come as a surprise to anyone.
3: Those professors were like, risks?
0: but and, and, like everyone was like you do realize that basically all of the computer chips in the world are made in taiwan right and that taiwan is not the most geopolitically stable place in the world and this is probably a risk that isn't a good thing and then what happened was everyone kind of like nodded sagely and and stroked their beards and said yes this is a big risk and did basically nothing about it and it turns out that there wasn't yet a shooting war in Taiwan that wasn't the problem but we did have some one of those like very foreseeable things again like the number of people warning about the risk of a global pandemic probably was in the millions you know before it happened lots of people were warning about it no one really did anything about it so the question i have is now that it has actually happened are you seeing signs of onshoring and slightly more redundancy and slightly more resiliency and companies kind of saying this is a thing that has happened once and will happen again and we need to be better prepared next time or is the competitive dynamic still so strong that they just can't afford to do that
1: i do think it could be a big get bigger situation because if you're walmart or your target you've already reserved you know for example the capacity the ocean freight capacity you need to get stuff from Asia to here. So, you know, a lot of the, you know, in Amazon, it's the same thing. These folks have the resources and the money to, you know, either guarantee their supply chains or, uh, you know, the flexibility to reshore. I don't know how much reshoring is actually going to happen. People certainly talk about it a lot. And also for specific products like microchips, you know, Intel is seeking tens of billions of dollars of subsidies to, create more manufacturing capacity here. Obviously, uh, uh, TSMC, the world's largest maker of the most advanced chips, is building a huge fab in Arizona. That's potentially a big deal. Samsung is talking about doing it as well. Uh, You know, I get pitches about, hey, Mexico is a great place to manufacture things. (laughs) Like, let's bring it back there. I don't know how much of that is going to happen. It really depends on the product. Um, Also, it's always helpful to remember that America by dollar value manufactures almost as many or the same amount of goods as China. It's just different kinds of stuff. So we are making a lot here. We do have a lot of manufacturing capacity here. Some of that can be ramped up. There are limits because of the uh, current unavailability of labor. So there are constraints, right? We can't just There are many reasons we can't just bring all that manufacturing back. Some of it is that we lack the expertise. Some of it is we just don't have enough people. I mean, Matthew Iglesias is not wrong when he says we could get up a billion Americans.
0: It's not just about America, though, right? Like, it is conceivable that the U.S., being like a continent-sized country, could, you know, by sheer brute force, just start manufacturing shit itself. But, like, most countries aren't big enough to do that. If you're Canada or Portugal or South Africa or something like that, you're not going to be able to run some kind of an import substitution program, where you're like, we're importing all of our stuff, so we have to start making it domestically, you have to be reliant on global supply chains. And I guess my question is, is that reliance always going to come with a bunch of fragility? Or is there a way of putting a little bit more resilience into that reliance?
1: I mean, yeah, I, I think the fragility is unavoidable. The flip side of it is that it also means that the interdependence is unavoidable, and that affects everyone. Because to return to you know the supply chains for microchips, one of the reasons that you know hopefully China won't just invade Taiwan one day is that even owning you know the world's largest manufacturer of advanced microchips wouldn't let them own the semiconductor supply chain, because so much of that also happens elsewhere. It happens in Southeast Asia. It depends on equipment manufactured by the Dutch, (laughs) by Americans. So with that interdependence comes fragility. They're just two sides of the same coin.
0: We used to hear this word trade a lot. And like, how much does America trade with Mexico? How much does Spain trade with Morocco? And it was like, you would think about trade as something which happened between two countries. And then at some point, people stopped talking about trade between countries and started talking about supply chains, which presumptively touched like a dozen different countries. And like, when did that change happen? And and like, how profound is it?
1: I think that the biggest two changes that happened to supply chains were the debut of the shipping container, which really, you know, came on the global scene starting in the sixties around the Vietnam war and just made it so easy to ship finished goods everywhere. So it just reduced the friction and the cost of making a supply chain as long as possible. And a supply chain is just all of the steps that happen between when stuff gets, you know, like dug out of the ground or grown or whatever, and when it gets to your door. And so, you know, that's why they're longer than ever, because ocean shipping is so cheap, containerization makes moving goods so efficient. And then we can't underestimate the importance of it's really a boring topic, but it's IT, you know. So just the ability to send emails around the world and attach PDFs for invoices and just coordinate, you know, action between you know, a designer in California and a manufacturer in China, that plus the ability to ship those goods so quickly and so cheaply. I mean, that's why supply chains are longer than ever. And a supply chain is just all of those steps, right? And we could talk and, about it. How important
0: good. were, like, free trade agreements, the WTO, the EU, NAFTA, were they, like, it, presumably if you have a supply chain with a whole bunch of different countries and they all have massive, tariffs with each other then that's not going to work
1: right and don't forget we recently did an empirical experiment in how important are those uh free trade agreements because we slapped uh, the trump administration slapped tariffs on china and also just like random tariffs do you remember the one on european i think it was
0: aluminum or steel or, or the one on uh, um, european wine under 14 percent alcohol that one hurt me <laughs> yeah
3: specifically felix like
0: right in the feelings French and German wine under fourteen percent alcohol. I was like, "What? No!" It was like the like Felix Why? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What if you, you talk to shippers,
1: or like Gene Soroka, he's the head of the Port of LA. He loves to sort of very diplomatically talk about how a lot of current issues are because trade got really screwed up by the tariffs with China, and and you know. It it sort of gummed things up and made people front load a bunch of shipping because they're like, we need to get this to America before these tariffs hit. And then as some were relaxed, they're like, okay, now we have all these goods waiting and that's going to. So obviously that makes a huge difference, right? Like when 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 you're dealing with lower margin goods, which is why you're manufacturing stuff in Asia anyway. um, Yeah, tariffs make a huge difference.
3: wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So I want to move on and talk about Amazon because I feel like Amazon is understood as a retailer and it is understood as a tech company and it's understood even perhaps by nerds as like a web services company. But somehow behind and alongside this, it has become, is it fair to say like the Biggest and most sophisticated logistics company in the world?
1: I think it is fair to say that,
0: yes. Like, it's overtaken FedEx, it's overtaken Mask, you know, like, it's crazy. Well,
1: I mean, to be clear, Amazon is not running its own ocean-going vessels yet. But it Um, will,
0: right? It's inevitable.
1: (laughs) I, I honestly can't say whether they will or not. I, I, but but if you're right, then like I owe you a steak dinner. That would be incredible. But I also thought they would never get into air freight. And now you see those prime airplanes at airports all over the place. So, yes, I, I think by by most measures, they are now bigger than FedEx. They don't have more planes than FedEx. But like in terms of packages moved, they're bigger than FedEx. It's underappreciated that their last mile logistics network got so big, like nearly bigger than FedEx and nearly UPS size in the span of like three years or whatever it was since they launched that. And that's all those trucks you see.
0: That Which means like it used to be when when you ordered a package from Amazon, they would historically either put it in the mail or they would give it to FedEx or they would give it to UPS. They would need to give it to a service who would then deliver it. And then at some point they did the math and they reckoned that it would be cheaper and more efficient for them to just deliver it itself, deliver that package themselves, and like literally hire a human being to bring that package to your front door. And that is new. And that has been growing at an absolutely insane pace. And that is why they can turn around and do things like say, Oh yeah, we're going to order a hundred thousand delivery vans. Because like we're going to need just this insane scale to be able to do that.
2: That's what they mean when they say last mile distribution center. It's not literally a mile to my house or anything, but it's like that last. (laughs) It's like the last 10 miles. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The last 10 or 20 miles. The part that traditionally, you know, when you see a UPS, a Brown UPS iconic van pull up in front of your house, that's last mile. Right. And so Amazon, it's not just that they thought they could do it cheaper. I think they also recognized that they were growing so quickly that Even UPS did not have the scale to handle all of their deliveries. I think they had some real close calls where like, you know, Christmas from Amazon was almost canceled and they were just like, no one has the capacity to deliver the number of packages we need to deliver. So we need to get into this business.
3: One of the reasons that folks are going back to brick and mortar is because no one has the capacity (laughs) to deliver all those packages. But what they can do is have a bunch of people go to one place. (laughs) So.
0: Well, I mean, this is true. It's a really, it's a really interesting form of last mile, which is basically outsourcing the last mile to the consumer, right? Yeah. Which is basically saying, um, <laughs> wait, true. did you just
1: call going to the store outsourcing the last mile? <laughs> this has the a consumer? bright
3: future
1: in operations management. <laughs> so if I go, wow. if I go to the corner store and buy a pack of band aids, that's yeah, okay. Amazon yeah. outsourced that to me.
0: But I mean, that was always the business model of big box stores, right? That was the business model of Costco and even to a certain extent at Walmart.
1: I mean, this was also the business model of the ancient Babylonians. Like, let's just be clear. What you're <laughs> well, no, 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 no. no store that's I'm, I'm, being, I'm being slightly
0: more, like, <laughs> subtle than that. Like, ba- basically what I'm saying is that um, there was always an inventory issue at the store, right? Which was that, the ancient Babylonians had relatively small huts, and they couldn't store, store you know, massive piles of toilet paper in their hut. So what they <laughs> the did was they paper. created a system of stores where they would, like, you know, go to the store <laughs> and they needed some toilet paper, and then they would come back with a roll of toilet paper. And then when they needed another roll of toilet paper, they would go to the store, and there would be a roll of toilet paper there. And the store—literally, the word "store" means they are storing that stuff. It is there in the name, and the innovation of the big box stores like like costco was to in large part outsource that storage function to the consumer so the idea was you would start buying chest freezers and massive like Three thousand square foot houses, and you would have space to buy in bulk, and it would, and the store would be your garage, basically, right?
1: Well, don't forget—I believe it was it was either Amazon or Walmart patented the idea of putting a teeny tiny last ten foot store in, like, in your, your house or own something.
3: House <laughs> <It>
1: just, <laughs> it makes nah. sense. It's the logical end of it all. Wait, yeah. I, I mean missed that's this. Just, Wait, like it's that just like dystopia. that
2: thing in the hotel. You guys are in hotels, so it's, it's like
1: a vending like, machine. Yeah.
2: The, the little yeah, no, that little like fridge. That. Filled with the snacks in your hotel that you. I mean, think look, is yours you can
1: already charge You can already have somebody come into your house and fill your fridge for you. <laughs>
2: so I mean, Amazon
3: was off. also. I don't know if this ever launched, but they were also talking about the ability to have people put something in your like trunk of your car if you weren't home, right? And I have always no, that's not true. I have long believed that shipping is underpriced, and that. I, w- I have been waiting for a long time for people to be like, wow, free shipping is environmentally a nuisance and also just wildly expensive, right? And yet we, you know, we have trained generations of consumers to be like, oh my God, $4.99 shipping for this $400 order I just placed, that seems like too much. <laughs> so all of, all of this seems to me to be kind of, of a piece of putting costs back on consumers that probably should fairly have been there before.
0: I mean, that's I mean, it is a good point, Stacy. that if you want to point to areas of like massive deflation, yeah. um, getting shipping tough. costs is definitely one of them. And Amazon is a large part of that, that the Amazon has really been a force for bringing shipping costs down to a point which is actually extremely environmentally harmful.
1: And also Jimmy Carter, he deserves a lot of credit here. Because he signed the Motor Carrier Act. Jimmy Carter signed the Motor Carrier Act. Oh, yeah, let's won. talk
2: about this. Truckers. And it was,
1: uh, yes, you tweeted about it, Emily. I and it had was had absolutely a transformative. <laughs> it was a world class <laughs> tweet. It was absolutely transformative because it deregulated the trucking industry and it made trucking. The goal was at the time, you know, we were just coming out of the oil crisis. And the goal was let's make trucking, shipping goods way cheaper. And it worked. But it also turned trucking into this like insane cage match where uh you know it's very fragmented and drivers are constantly you know trying to buy trucks and start their own trucking companies and then going bust the next time that there's a drop in demand um but it did accomplish the goal of making shipping by truck much cheaper which inevitably led to big box stores which then led to Amazon.
2: What's so interesting in your book you compare like the Walmarts and the big box stores to what Amazon does and um like Walmart used to be the innovator when it com- came to selling people lots of stuff. And and technologically, having, they were
1: innovators. Yeah. They were the first to use RFID to track all of their goods through their warehouses, that kind of thing.
2: But then Amazon kind of like left them in the dust, basically. Could you talk a little about that, about the difference between like the distribution center and the fulfillment center? Is that the nerdiest question I've ever
1: yes. asked? Yes. <laughs> <ever? laughs> oh so my God, I love this so much. <laughs> <laughs> a distribution center, you know, picture a wooden pallet and it's just stacked with tons of stuff, you know. Amazon Echoes or toilet paper or whatever. And that pallet goes through a distribution center and then is shipped to a Walmart where it might not even be broken down. If you walk into Walmart and you know what to look for, sometimes you'll see these huge cardboard boxes full of like, you know, Hot Wheels cars and there's a wooden pallet still under the bottom. They didn't even bother to like <laughs> unpackage it, but a fulfillment center was this fundamentally new beast that Amazon and others during kind of like the, the last internet bust uh, had to invent. And a Fulfillment Center, it is a factory, really, and what it manufactures is your order. So the fact that you ordered like, you know, toothpaste and shampoo and uh, ShamWow and whatever, that has to all be put together in one cardboard box. That's actually a manufacturing process. And that's why Amazon was able to use all these robots to do it. And so that process that you used to have to go to the store and walk to all the shelves, as Felix put it, like, you know, getting the <laughs> fulfillment outsourced to you as the consumer, now is sucked inside of the robot um, fulfillment center, and and the and the result that it shoots out at the end is this cardboard box that has all of your goods in it, and gets which sent is totally to
0: bespoke you. and totally customized, and the cost of customizing that cardboard box just for me with exactly what I want and not with anything that I don't want is zero. I mean, Amazon has been providing that service at zero from the beginning, basically. It has somehow managed to hide those costs in the cost of the goods. But, you know, it's been undercutting the store for the cost of the goods. And that idea of, of um, being able to do that fulfillment at a price of zero and almost making people not value it is amazing.
2: Right, exactly. That it's sort of an, an invisible expectation to them. It makes sense because it's replacing something that you never like that you did for free. I used to be my fulfillment center. I go to the store and fulfill my order myself, and like I didn't have to in the bottle to do it.
1: The term of art is picker. So (laughs) right, I was a picker.
2: The the
0: the term term of art, I believe, Christopher Mims. There was. I'm I'm old enough to remember when there was this thing known as a shopping list. (laughs)
4: <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <But you laughs> and I prefer
2: perform all passing. that labor for free. I write down my list. I bring it with me. I look at it and I get the stuff. Like Amazon will now do that for you for basically no cost. By the cost. way, if,
1: if we're talking about huge economic windfalls, keep in mind all of the hours that have been saved, all of us by the fact that we don't have to go to the store and do that anymore.
3: Well, all of the hours that we have underpaid the people who still have to do those things, I would say, because... So that's like, my yes. question for you, Chris, is disappear. is like
0: in terms of the fulfillment, in terms of like com- combining the shampoo and the ShamWow, how much of that is robots and how much of that is $15 an hour humans?
1: Oh, I don't know how you would, would quantify their relative contributions. I don't know. Maybe it's like 50-50. Um, because the, the way that people describe this is it's like islands of automation and they have to be sort of connected together by humans. And that's the part where you have a person who has to, you know, pick like 400 objects an hour as quickly as they can off of these robot driven shelves and put them in a tote. And then the tote goes down all these conveyors and goes to a packer and they're packing them into a box as fast as they can and taping it up and getting it out the door. So, you know, robots aren't dexterous enough to do those in between connective bits But there's other things that they can do very quickly. But that means that the humans have to keep up with the pace of the robots. And that's why Amazon has this terrible problem with um, uh, associates getting like uh, repetitive stress injuries and stuff like that. Because it's a 10-hour shift, you know, with with only three breaks. So it's nine hours of like working all out.
2: For all the talk about robots and technology, at the end of the day, supply chains, logistics, these are... I think you say, like labor-intensive processes. You cannot remove people from the process. And that's where a lot of the fragility comes from and a lot of the, the problems that I guess we've talked about on this podcast and everywhere else, right?
1: Yes, because it, 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 all of those potential bottlenecks along the supply chain, like my favorite one is Biden ordered the ports to go to 24-hour operations. And then the CEO of Flexport like sent a taco truck at night to the port of LA to see like how that was working out. And there were a bunch of you know unionized longshoremen standing around waiting for trucks to show up. And they're like, we went to 24 operations and now there's no trucks here. And that's because of the trucking, the inland trucking part of that bottleneck of that supply chain is also has its own problems. And and that's a, in a, in a way a labor issue. Right.
2: So the ports went to 24 hours, but the truckers did not.
1: Yep. So it didn't work.
0: labor supply chains in slate plus because this is really fascinating like the number of different humans who kind of touch your you know usb charger that you follow in the book between the factory and the delivery but i also because i am a complete auction nerd want to talk about the constitution dow and i need i need to squeeze that in this episode somehow Okay, Stacey, wh- what, what is a DAO and why are we talking about one?
3: Okay, here's here's what a DAO is. It, a DAO is what's known as a decentralized autonomous organization. And the idea is that it's a corporation without managers, without owners, without a structure, that there is an organic upswelling of people rallying around a common idea and that governance will happen on the blockchain. So there's at least three things that are like and unlike traditional structures. One is lots of different kinds of structures exist to coalesce people around a common cause, right? If anybody listening is a member of the Park Slope Co-op, you know exactly how hardcore that organization is for something that, you know, technically doesn't have a governance structure, but really, in fact, it does. We have a long history of limited libation, li- libation limited liability <laughs> companies. Um, we have... Which
0: also limit the libations. I mean, I'm very down limit on the that. Libations
3: if their governance is in order. Um, we have churches we have cults, right? Like the organizations vary across and around the world. The supposed inno- innovation of these DAOs is that they are fundamentally leaderless and take direct democracy as the baseline. The reality of DAOs and or if you are a person who is either violently pro or violently against joining things, is what tends to happen is people who are loud and first end up, you know, really setting the tone for the overall thing. You have a sort of a fundamental community management challenge where if you are super keen and really care about something, you are likely to spend the time, and in this case, the crypto, (laughs) to put yourself in a position where you have the ability to influence things more than other people who may be less motivated or um, less megalomaniacal (laughs) than you are about whatever that thing is.
0: So yeah, there is there is voting that you vote you vote on the blockchain. and, And correct me, Stacey, is this like a one you vote in proportion to your tokens shareholding, right? So it's not one don't person say no, one don't vote. Say it's like one each one vote.
3: Yeah, it's not. It's not shares or tokens.
0: <laughs> but <laughs> it, token. it does look a little bit like company with shareholders, which is why a bunch of people were saying like, "Why couldn't you just set up a company to do this?" But in order to answer that question, first of all, you need to explain what this is. What are we talking about here?
3: So this is something known as Constitution Dow. And it started off, as many of these things do, like for the lulls, where some folks were like, wouldn't it be cool if we bought this print of the, cons- of the Constitution that's going up for auction at Sotheby's? I'm not going to talk about the auction part. That's all you, Felix. And they started raising money. And it was like, hey, donate some money. Like, we'll try to buy the Constitution. And then people were like, oh, yeah.
0: There yeah, were Nicolas Cage memes. <laughs>
3: Yeah, it was, it was, it was a total, you know, museum situation. So, you know, it was like, okay, 5 million, 17 million, 31 million. And the velocity of this thing was happening very quickly. And when I say donate money, they weren't actually donating fiat. They were donating um, crypto in the form of ETH to, you know, to this DAO. And one of the, Big interesting things that has happened in the past couple of days is it really helped people understand how expensive actually doing certain kinds of crypto transactions can be because the 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 people not the owners the people in Constitution Dow put out a statement that said hey the median donation was about two hundred and forty one dollars. And people very quickly realized, well, hang on, if the median donation was about $241 or the crypto equivalent, but the fees involved in even making that donation ranged from $50 to $100, you had a bunch of folks who were like, making much smaller contributions than they otherwise could have because of just the idiosyncratic nature of how that crypto, I guess, Kickstarter worked
0: spoiler alert they didn't buy the Constitution so now the expectation is they will give the money back and giving the money back involves incurring all of those fees all over again to send them back the other way so if you spent if you if you donated 200 bucks and then you spent 75 dollars donating it to the Dow and then it cost another 75 dollars to get it back from the Dow your round-trip cost is three quarters of your donation
3: Unlike credit card transaction fees. So say you're donating to a a nonprofit or a charitable organization of some kind, you know, your transaction fees, if you're using a credit card, could range from two and a half to say 3%, but that is proportional to the, um, the amount of your donation, right? Whereas if you were making a donation to this, to this DAO, even if you were donating $1, you were potentially having to pay a $50 What's known as a gas fee so the economics are wild you know the constitution dow folks were like well the way you get around this is give us more money <laughs> so so the economics <laughs> the percentage are goes down
0: if you give us a million it's like hmm. exactly so what happened was that they raised this sum of money in the dow and they went to sotheby's and said we want to give you all of this money to buy the Constitution. And Sotheby's saw this large pot of money and said, yum, we love large pots of money. We would love your money. Yes, please. But we also live in the real world with, you know, courts and rules and regulations and stuff. And we have this thing called KYC. Like, if someone bids on an object that Sotheby's we need to make sure they're not money laundering so we need to know who they are and so KYC stands to know your customer so anyone who bids on an object at Sotheby's needs to go through this process and normally the KYC no, normally this is very easy right which is basically I go up to my friend at Sotheby's and I say I want to bid on the object and they say can you give me the name of your private banker and then I phone up the private banker and we go through the you know, and, and like the bidder doesn't ever need to do anything, but like all of the documentation that needs to get sent back and forth is done between Sotheby's and Credit Suisse or whatever, right? And it's 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 just like something that happens in the world that most people never see or think about, including, it has to be said, most of the people who set up the DAO. And then the DAO goes along to Sotheby's and they're like, well, you need to go through this KYC process. And they're like, what's the KYC process? And they're like, can you just give us the name of your private bank Credit Suisse? And they're like, yeah, we don't have one of those. And so it became a bit of a problem. And so they created this workaround, which was that they started an LLC, a good old-fashioned real-world company without any of this cryptographic governance with real-world actual shareholders. I think there were two real-world actual shareholders. And the real-world LLC was going to bid on it and did bid on the constitution. There was this kind of generalized understanding that whatever the LLC did would be governed by the DAO and that the DAO participants had governance tokens and the governance tokens would like take votes and make decisions. And that that would in some but, kind of weird moral way, at least be binding yeah, on the this, LLC. If This not is legally. the problem.
3: This is the problem. It is. Well, I think of it as a, as a problem because I think of things in terms of executing. Right. And it, it is, it's one thing to say that we're all in this together we're good people, trust us ethically, this is what's gonna happen. And sure, right? I mean, crypto is full of examples of folks doing the right thing. I mean, I, I, there was a memorable fat finger a couple of months ago where somebody inadvertently transferred like $100 million more than they were supposed to to another wallet. And the, the person on the other end was like, oh, sorry about that. Here it is. And they just gave it back, right? It, it, it's a market that has, I think, an, an unusual amount of altruism ba- baked into it. But that makes it vulnerable to people who are less scrupulous. And it also makes it vulnerable to courts, and to people who lawyer up and say, well, you know, funnily enough, this clause right here. <laughs> um, and I think that, that to me is, I really want to see how these DAOs like, develop and if they actually just end up looking like LLCs on blockchains.
0: So one of the interesting questions that has now arisen is that after the DAO got outbid, at Sotheby's. It has all of this money. It, as I say, it presumptively is going to try and give it back and, you know, pay all of those gas fees to give everyone their money back. But one of the things that happened between the Dow being formed and the auction was that Sotheby's found another copy of the constitution. <laughs> there it turns out they, they initially said there was only one. Supply Suddenly, chains and two.
3: constitutions.
0: Like this is not something that could ever happen with an NFT, right? If you're selling an NFT which is one of one or one of the one of eleven, then you know where the other ten are. Then that is what you know to be true. In the world of real world auctions, Sotheby's initially says it's one of eleven, of, and the other ten are all in institutions. And a couple of weeks later, they've basically changed their mind and said, "Oh, it turns out it's it's." One of 13, and there is actually another one in private hands after all, which you would think would decrease the value of this one, but it doesn't seem to have done that. But it raises this interesting question, which is that the owner of the other one in private hands, whoever that is, probably thought, according to Sotheby's estimates, that it was worth 15, maybe 20 million dollars. And now they know that there is a potential buyer out there willing to spend forty-seven million dollars on it, right? Because this is what the exist- This is what the purpose of the Dow is: is to buy the Constitution. And most people offered forty-seven million dollars for a piece of paper would at least be mildly tempted to sell it. So the interesting question is: Can the Dow buy the other one, or is that, or because it was set up to bid on this one at Sotheby's, can it not?
3: Well, that would be a vote, right? Like the folks with governance tokens would have to, in the in the notion of this structure, would have to agree or disagree one way or another.
0: So do they need to agree to have the money returned to them? Is that going to be like a thing where, where there's going to be a vote like saying, should we get our money back or should we keep it pooled for the time being just to see whether we can buy this other one? Is there going to be a vote on that?
3: That's what, that's actually one of the questions that I was trying to chase last night, because the statement from the Constitution DAO folks was, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna look at refunds, et cetera, et cetera. And there were immediately a bunch of people who were like, no, no, we want the DAO to keep the money. And I was like, oh, well, that's a disagreement among. <laughs> Token holders, what's the mechanism for resolving disputes in in the context of a DAO? Uh, and right now, it is it is voting with your tokens. So I think that all of those things have to be resolved if there isn't clear clear explicit consensus about what the next steps are.
2: It's so interesting to think about this in contrast with what we've been talking about with Chris, because like supply chain logistics is all extremely complicated and requires high levels of coordination and centralized thinking, planning, strategy. Meanwhile, there's this whole other thing happening with this DAO, with crypto, decentralized everything. And like, I'm not convinced that's going to work out. Things require coordination. They're too complicated for a DAO to actually work, right? The
3: argument for blockchain is that it's not that decentralization is not coordination. It's that it distributes that coordination across a far greater number of actors, the reality of the things that have been held up as the best examples of of how crypto can replace traditional finance look very much like traditional finance, right? We have exchanges (laughs) which literally exist to gather in one place groups of buyers and sellers in order to create markets and provide liquidity that wouldn't otherwise exist. Governance councils within the context of a DAO, the need for single places, whether that be Twitter or Reddit or Discord, to have these conversations and organize people around those conversations and disseminate information. You know, total decentralization Centralization is, I would say, not just hard, but I have not seen it really exist in practice. It's not like the, you know, sparrows suddenly appearing to coordinate magically and then everything is like working out in ways that science still doesn't fully understand. Like there's still a lot of just brass tacks figuring out and talking to each other and having some sort of structure to make these things happen.
0: Chris, I mean, to, to the point of the last segment, the way that Amazon became this incredible force in logistics was by force of centralization right and the idea that jeff bezos could just be like i am willing to spend however much money it takes to organize and control this massive globe-spanning octopus Um, well
1: it's decentralization and decentralization because we can't forget that a big you know important ingredient in amazon's success has been its marketplace which is a totally uh, i mean it's centralized in that amazon controls it But it's totally decentralized in that anyone can sell on it. So you have tons and tons of manufacturers in China, for example, who used to have to go through American or European or whatever retailers. And now they go direct to the customer through the Amazon marketplace. So it is kind of a a little bit of a a DAO because there is this element of just sort of purely democratic, purely market-based chaos at the heart of Amazon's marketplace and you know we don't notice this because we don't you know, people don't track this but there are actually tools that let you change track the change in price of various objects on Amazon's marketplace and depending on how thick the like number the market is for a particular item like batteries let's say or if it's specialized and there's only a few sellers We don't notice this, but the price of those items can fluctuate quite a bit because it is almost its own kind of stock market within Amazon's marketplace for like how much supply is there, how many buyers are there, etc.
0: It's 100% something I've noticed. And one of the reasons why people stopped thinking about inflation for so long was precisely because amazon prices aren't sticky in the way that supermarket prices are if you go to the su- supermarket every week and the gallon of milk costs the same price every week and then one day you go to the supermarket and the gallon of milk costs more you're like yikes the gallon of milk has gone up that's inflation whereas with amazon and if you buy you know a bunch of AA batteries every you know few months on amazon and they cost something completely different every time trying to find the signal in that noise is much harder
2: if I'm getting ready to go to an auction tomorrow and I know the person bidding, I'm bidding against totally take off my soft pants, put on the hard pants. And I know, I know the person I'm bidding against is going to bid $20 or $40 million. Aren't I just going to show up and bid 20, 40 million point one. Like how is this an interesting auction? If we all knew how much. Oh my God. So this is the most
0: interesting. This is the most interesting auction that Sotheby's has had in years for precisely this reason, that auction tactics are always based on asymmetrical information. Each bidder knows how much they're willing to bid, but they don't know how much the other bidder is willing to bid. And the way that an English-style auction works, which is what you have at Sotheby's, is they slowly reveal in ever great ever higher steps like how much they're willing to bid and they're kind of sussing each other out and then occasionally what you'll find you know if there's like a painting up for auction you know it goes like 1 million 2 million 3 million and then one of the bidders will go like 10 million in an attempt to try and just like punch the other guy out in in like in, in a blow that is unanswerable there's a bunch of different tactics that happen um intimidation tactics and that kind of stuff that happen in auctions but the one thing that basically never happens is that one person like puts a big sign up outside the auction house saying, I am 100% committed to spending up to 47 million and no more on this object. And then you guys know exactly what I'm willing to spend and able to spend. And And that is my bidding strategy right there. And you're all aware of it. No one does that for very good reason. But that is exactly what happened in this case, right? This method of bidding at auction is tactically insane.
2: Yeah, it seems really dumb. Like, I couldn't understand. The whole point of the auction is like, you don't know what anyone else is going to, how much it's going to cost. You're.
1: Is it dumb or is it just for the lulls? If the whole thing's a practical joke anyway, who even thought it would get this far?
0: Okay, let's have a numbers round. Stacy, what's your number?
3: My number is 990. And that is the number as of mid-November 2021, when we are recording this episode, of investigations that the Federal Aviation Administration has opened into unruly passenger behavior. Oh, my um, God. At a time when people keep trying to punch flight attendants in the face. Um, oh. And for, for comparison, uh, the similar number for, you know, a comparable period in 2020 was 183. So, oh. <gasps> so yeah. Wow.
0: Public service announcement to all Slate Money listeners. Please don't punch flight attendants in the face. Come on, people. <laughs> what are we? Do better. Chris, I brought a number for you, a special supply chain number which is 2,454. Do you know what that is?
1: 2,454. Is that the number of shipping containers that fell into the ocean last year?
0: (laughs) Good guess. No, that is the level of the Baltic Dry Index.
1: Oh, everybody loves the Baltic Dry Index.
0: Which is everybody's favorite index. If you don't love the Baltic Dry Index. Um, Emily, do you not know what the Baltic Dry Index is?
2: I don't. All I know, no, is that something in Monopoly? I know there's a Baltic in Monopoly. Chris, is that
0: what is what is the Baltic Dry Index? Um,
1: it's uh, isn't it a measure of um, trade in uh, European wines below 14% alcohol? <laughs> <laughs> nice. And you're the you're the bullet. You're, what is it? You're yeah. the, uh, it yeah, it's, you're it's the, the price.
0: It's the price of white dry wine from Estonia.
2: Really? <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> Baltic Dry Index is a is a is a measure of the cost of shipping.
0: Yeah, shipping costs are very opaque and complicated, but if there's one generally accepted measure of shipping costs, it's the Baltic Dry Index. And what has happened to the Baltic Dry Index is really fascinating. It was always in like the 1500 range, 2000 range before the pandemic. You know, it reached up to basically where it is right now about 2400 and then over the course of this year it just went up and up and up shipping costs went crazy it reached as much as five and a half thousand levels it had never before seen and people got really freaked out about shipping costs and demand for shipping massively exceeding supply and what has happened just in the past few weeks is that it has come back down again and we are now, it is not low, but it is now back at a vaguely normal level. And it is no longer massively elevated, which I uh, don't know much about shipping. Chris is the expert here, but I'm going to say is a positive sign in saying that maybe some of the worst bottlenecks in the shipping world are unwinding themselves.
1: Yes, I think the shipping world is is. is- slowly and now maybe more quickly digesting this huge bolus of trade of material that was shoved through it as a result of
0: the pandemic. Um, Emily, what's your number?
2: I had two options and I was going to do the cost of Thanksgiving dinner, but I've decided that that's boring and unrealistic. So my number is $154 million. That is the 2020 pay package of a guy named Bobby. Bobby is the CEO of Activision Blizzard, and in Chris's employer's paper this week, the Wall Street Journal ran this story that is just jaw-dropping about this company and how it treats women from, from Bobby and on down. I mean, the allegations are just wild. I mean, rapes, suicide, harassment, all of it that the CEO probably knew about um, and they're being sued by California right now. And since they've been sued, 500 more complaints have come in from current and former employees. I mean, this is only a company of 3,000 employees. This is the company that makes um, World of Warcraft and Call of Duty, which I guess if anyone's ever seen Call of Duty get played, you're like, oh, the company that makes that <laughs> treats women badly. You're <laughs> like, okay, that makes sense. Um Anyway, everyone should go read the story. It's crazy to me that I mean, it got I saw it getting attention when it it came out, but I felt like how is this not getting more attention? I mean, there's an anecdote in the piece about an employee. Um, other people showed like a like a naked picture of her at an office party, and she like died by suicide a few days later. I mean, it's just like awful. I can't believe it. So everyone should um, read that story. Yeah,
0: this this story started off terrible a few months ago, and it's just been getting worse and worse. And this is like, yeah, it's amazing how bad it's getting. Uh, Chris, you have a number?
1: Yeah, my number is um, 28. And that is the percentage of Manhattan office workers in the office on an average day now. And pre pandemic, it was 80%. And the reason I chose this number is that it epitomizes this just unbelievably huge shift in not just the way that we work but the way that we live and it's and when you
0: say herb. we you mean people who Office live in workers. manhattan or new yorkers because like <laughs> new york is such such an outlier on this like pick any other city in america or even pretty much the world and that number, that that delta will be much smaller.
1: That's true. But if you look across America at the percentage of people who can work from home, which is a surprisingly large proportion, like it's, it's as much as 40% of America's workforce can work from home. And according to the Gallup numbers, which I think are better than the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers, we're still like, I think like 30% of all workers are working from home some of the time. And so that... Created such a huge change in how we work and live that it's an underappreciated driver of the supply chain crisis because people have bought so much stuff to enable this new way of life, and that's you know in a lot of the shipping containers that are sitting around at the port of LA right now.
0: Yeah, the the way that Slate Money awkwardly and then eventually wholeheartedly seems to have embraced remote work is a prime example of this, which is all thanks to Shana Roth. Who's the amazing producer on this show? Thank you, Shana, for putting this together. It's amazing to watch you coordinate people across continents and time zones. And um, of course, we couldn't do it without you guys, you listeners, we love you. Thank you for listening. Keep the emails coming. Sleepmoney at slate.com. Um, and we're gonna be back on Monday with Taffy, which is very exciting. Yeah, Taffy Brodus atner is back on Slate Money Succession talking about episode six. Well, I mean, it's Taffy. Of course, it's going to be amazing. So that's...
2: It's amazing.
0: Something to look forward to. And then we'll be back the following Saturday with another Slate Money.